Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. If I were to describe how Christians were supposed to act, would words like combative, aggressive, antagonistic, or belligerent come to mind? Probably not. We'd probably want to distance ourselves from such a version of Christianity. Yet God mandates that we have this attitude towards sin and all powers of darkness. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy, entitled The 38th Parallel, will describe what our battle with sin is supposed to look like. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Eric Ludy. Father, I pray that you would increase the expectancy within your body. Lord, may we anticipate the increase of our God upon our lives. Lord, we cannot stay stationary. We must move. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would move us forward. There are things that you are forming within your body. There are things you're forming in us as individuals. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would feel the push today. Lord, you need your men and women. You, you are asking us to pray that the Lord of the harvest would bring forth the laborers. Lord, I pray that all over this world, that demand and that need for the truth of the gospel would be met by those within this congregation here. That we would feel the call and that we would move outside of our comfort zone. Lord Jesus, bring us. Bring us forward. Expand your kingdom. Start and build it within us. And then build into this earth and then through us. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Sort of a mysterious title. Uh, some of you who know your history may understand what this title is, but I'm not going to give it away just yet. But the 38th parallel. Isn't that intriguing? Aren't you fascinated? Uh, well, this is about war. And this is a term that's, uh, well, is really associated with war. Uh, it's associated with a peace treaty that has never been signed. You know, Jesus, when he died on the cross, all the powers of earth and hell could just bend and sign the peace treaty. He's the ruler. He's the rightful conqueror of all. Just give up. You know, when Saul was rejected as king of Israel way back in the day, and, and God said to Saul, I've chosen a better man. You know what Saul should have done? Sign the peace treaty. Instead, they didn't sign the peace treaty, and we have ourselves a 38th parallel. Okay, that'll make more sense as we progress. A spirit war. You know, we in Christianity use terminology that's just sort of weird to people. You know, we say, no, our battle is not against flesh and blood. And everyone's like, oh, what in the world are they talking about? We have a spirit war. And everyone's like, oh, there they go again, a spirit war. If we don't understand what our battle is, we don't know how to fight it. And we will lose at the battle that we have been called to fight. We must know how this battle works and how to fight it. So we have what I'm going to term a spirit war. And let me quote Paul. We do not war after the flesh. So what you see in that is Paul doesn't say we war after the spirit in this exact context here. But what he's saying is we do not war after the flesh. There is a manner in which everyone else wars. If you want to get something accomplished in your life, if you want to move forward an agenda, if you want to stop someone else's agenda, you war after the flesh. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Hey, Christians, we don't war that way. And we look back, we're like, what are you calling it? You're going to make us weaklings here. We're going to be overtaken by the enemy. Paul says, you have no idea then. Because the battle we fight is greater. And the power we wield is greater than anything the flesh can wield. We must understand the weapons of our warfare. In Ephesians 6.10, some of you have heard this before, but in the context, I'm just going to lay out some raw materials. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. There's this notion that it's not totally false, but it lacks its balance oftentimes in modern 
Christian presentation, and that is what many would call pacifism. In other words, we aren't supposed to fight. We aren't supposed to do anything. Remember, our battle isn't against the flesh. And so we yield and we give over ourselves to whatever hostile intent comes against us. Well, most of us in here would probably uh, wriggle a little at such a notion. However, there is a permeation within the Christian world of today, and it's, it's based on an element of truth. And that is that the enemy comes against us and strikes us on one cheek, and what are we supposed to do? Well, turn the other one. And so what we see here in Ephesians 6 is we see a forcefulness of stance, and we see an intentionality of positioning, that when the enemy comes against us, we do not just get knocked over. Wait a minute. So in one sense, we're supposed to turn the other cheek and seemingly get knocked over. And the second one, we're supposed to stand and we're supposed to resist that the wiles of the devil would be foiled. Hmm. How do these things work together? That's what we're going to talk about. The spiritual vocabulary of war. So for those of us that have excluded the notion of battle and war from the Christian idea, need to be introduced to the Bible. Because the Bible actually uses the picture of war to describe the reality in which we live. I remember this one emergent writer named Donald Miller said that he, he thought the war metaphor was tiresome. He was, he was tired of us as Christians using the war metaphor. A metaphor is when you take something and liken it to something different. You know that the war idea in the Bible is not a metaphor? It is the description of reality. The fact that we have a battle over in Iraq is not a metaphor. It is a fact. We are at odds and at enmity with another power. We are at war. And we, as Christians, are not in a seeming kind of thing that can have a, 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 a nuance of things that are like war. It is war. It is battle. And we must be equipped for it. And we must know how to fight in battle. In battle, you don't come in and just get shot in the head and fall over. You come in guarded and understanding your enemy so that you can come in and hit him in the head. Your job is to win. However, we must know what we're fighting against. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting against something a lot bigger and a lot more powerful than flesh and blood. The kiddo time with Nick, he's talking about behemoth and Leviathan. Well, that's more of what we're fighting against. We're fighting against something so much more powerful, as I always have said, we're fighting against the puppeteers of the humans. There are powers that are controlling the forces at work in this earth. The men and women of the armies and the nations, there are powers above and beyond them that are puppeteering them. Our job isn't to come against the humans. Our job is to come against the spiritual powers, principalities and forces that are ruling over them. You see, when we look at David's battle, we see something, especially as men, we are attracted to. We're like, you know what? He got to fight against the Philistines. Let me just draw a sword and fight. I don't like this. Our battle is not against the flesh. You know, it would be a lot easier if it was because we'd know better how to fight it. We as humans are wired to fight against the flesh. We are not wired to fight against the spirit. So we look at it as a dumbed-down version of fighting. You know, Kids get together for their little Bible classes and they dress up in little plastic armor outfits with little plastic swords. And so we pat them on the head and go, oh, how cute. And we fail to realize what the Christian battle is because it's become cute as opposed to the fact that we are not fighting Philistine armies. We're fighting the powers that puppeteer the Philistine armies. And when we hit those powers square in the forehead... You know what happens? The Philistine army is freed to come over to the side of Jesus Christ. And that has never been true throughout history until the cross. We have the power and the position in the heavenly realms to hit square in the forehead the powers of hell to see all the men and women on earth set free under the purposes of Jesus Christ. The spiritual vocabulary of war. Now, these, this is, I put way too many uh, Greek words in one message for myself, okay? So we'll see. I tried to practice these before we got in here. Stratuyo, to make a military expedition to lead soldiers to battle. 
Well, that's one of the things, by the way, you're going to find that we are supposed to be doing. We are to make a military expedition and to lead soldiers to battle. That doesn't sound like pacifism to me. So I'm going to give you, I think it's like four or five key points that it, it makes in Scripture. One is we are to make war against darkness. Catharsis, a pulling down, destruction, demolition. By the way, as I go through these, you're going you're gonna to hear how opposite Christianity these things sound. Because we as Christians are comforters, we as Christians are you know, tear wipers, we're huggers, we're not fighters. Look at these words, a pulling down, destruction, demolition. We are to demolish enemy strongholds. Cathario, to pull down, destroy, demolish. See, we as guys have been waiting for these words to come out. This is good vocabulary. We are to destroy anything and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Uh-oh. Ikmalatesoyel. Let me try that again. Ikmalotizio. Uh, something like that. <laughs> to lead away captive, to subjugate, to bring under control. It's the equivalent of having a lion tamed and the, and the lion tamer with his foot upon the lion's neck. We are to subjugate and master every thought attempting to enter the human mind. Edikeo, to avenge a wrong, to vindicate and make right. These things just don't sound Christian. They sound a little too aggressive, a little too hostile, a little too mean, a little too angry. We are to be ready to avenge and vindicate the person of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. Where did I get all those words? All in one passage. For though we walk in the flesh, in other words, we're in this body, we do not war after the flesh in the manner of the way a body would naturally fight its wars. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not earthly, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Oh, that's good stuff. Paul just gave us a command, and he says, you better realize that this is a battle, and you need to recognize that your weapons for this battle, even though they're not born of the body and they're not wielded like a sword is in a physical realm, they are wielded in the spiritual realm, and they are mighty, and they are able to accomplish all God needs them to accomplish. They are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. That's the equivalent of tearing down walls of Jericho. Could you imagine, what if you could understand that? You try it as a physical body, coming up to the walls of Jericho and kicking them, pulling on them, yanking on them. What's a human body going to do to the walls of Jericho? How about a spiritual body? spiritual man of God comes up to the walls of Jericho and literally tugs him down. The weapons of our warfare are mighty to the pulling down of the walls of Jericho. This, this message actually flowed out of a conversation that Ben and I had on the plane on the way back. And I, I said to Ben, he was sitting next to me, uh, and we were in a little, I don't know, L.A. to Denver, you'd think you'd get a bigger plane, right? What was it, about a 20-person plane? You know, uh, and so Ben and I were like <laughs> packed in there. Uh, and uh, so I was talking to him. I said, there's something that n I'm trying to get words for. I need a way of articulating it spiritually. And so we were talking about it. And this is sort of the illustration that came out. A, a few weeks ago, I gave the message called the mystery of the body. And I talked about the fact that the way Paul describes the body is it's like a factory. It's an operation. The body itself is like the warehouse. The body itself is not the problem. The problem is what is taking place inside of that warehouse because there's multiple machines in this warehouse that Paul calls members, members of the body. And these members are given over to sin or the principle of sin. Well, what is sin? Sin is you sitting in the director's chair, that nice glassed-in office in the corner. It is meant for Jesus Christ and said, your derriere is sitting on the director's chair 
and you are where you ought not to be. And as a result, the flesh, that big burly guy, remember he had uh, a grizzled chin uh, and he had uh, donut powder uh, on his chin? That guy is actually the one ruling the operation. He's known as the flesh. And the flesh is taken over the members of your body, the machines in your body, and the fruit of that or the product that is coming out is actually disgusting to heaven. And no matter how hard you try, you'll find that you are tied and gagged in your director's chair. You can't do anything about it. And so we talked about that and what the gospel does. The gospel is the equivalent of you pushing a red button in your office and crying out for help to Jesus Christ on the outside. He comes in, takes that scruffy, no good flesh, picks it up, throws it out of the operation and sets up shop. He cleanses it, wipes away all the filth and he takes his position in the director's chair. That, that picture on the wall when you come into the office originally, it was always you. You were sitting there and it's a director and you had your gold tooth and you were smiling in the picture. That picture is yanked down. You die to yourself. Now there's a picture of Jesus Christ when anyone comes into your life. They see him, not you. So we talked about that. And so I was trying to, when Ben and I were talking on the plane, I was like, well, how could this be articulated? Well, here it is. You know, we were just in hostile territory in Indonesia. And, you know, 95% Muslim. And that doesn't mean it's 5% Christian, by the way. It just means 95% Muslim. Christianity is a little blip there that has to stay quiet to save itself. If it goes mobile, if it starts yapping, well, then it will be quelled. It will be destroyed. Okay, it has to be watchful when you're in a Muslim nation. And so this is the idea. Now, instead of using Indonesia, since many of you aren't familiar with Indonesia, use something like Afghanistan. Okay, Afghanistan is one of those countries that very few of us ever feel called to go to. It's mainly because our ear is plugged. And we're like, God, you know, I, could you send some laborers to Afghanistan? In fact, most of us are not even stupid enough to pray that prayer because he might, you know, call you to go. So we just forget about places like Afghanistan and Iraq. Say, you know, they don't want us there. So I'm not about to just go and die. And so the interesting thing is, because of the United Nations, in a place like Iraq, you'll find a U.S. consulate, an embassy in Baghdad. Do they want the U.S. represented in Baghdad? No, they don't. They're not pro-U.S. But the United Nations has created a, an overarching boundary and said, you know, there is a consulate here. And so there is a consulate, a U.S. consulate. Well, that's us in the midst of Afghanistan or Iraq. We choose Jesus. We're like, uh, yeah, I'm, I choose Jesus. Well, here's a word to the wise. If you're going to have a U.S. consulate in the middle of Iraq, you don't want just your nice little building sitting there, you know, put a little flowers out, out in the front, build a little garden. As people walk by, you wave at them. Here's what you do. You build a high wall around your consulate building. You put that, uh, I don't know, what, what is it called? That uh, wire mesh with, uh, what's it called, barbed wire? Is that just razor wire? We want some razor wire on there. And then you stick guards out front. You should have seen when we were driving through Indonesia, they had all the uh, embassies. That's why it was in our head. But these guys are sitting there with their machine guns and they're like, uh, their masks over their face. They look really mean with their big boots on. It's sort of like, you come near here and you die. That's the way it felt. And so you just keep driving by. Well, that's sort of what we need. We need a hostile position towards all the powers of darkness. You do not come near here. This belongs to Jesus. We represent the kingdom of heaven on earth. And all the earth could say, you don't belong here. They could pick it outside. And we say, we're not moving. We have a right to be here, and you know it. Now, it's not that impressive to say, we're protected by the UN. We say, we're protected by the blood of Jesus. Any questions? You cannot get us to move. We are planted squarely in hostile territory. Most of us as Christians don't realize that. So we play around with our Christianity, and we can't figure out why we keep getting overcome by darkness. 
but we must recognize the seriousness of our position on earth. We are in the midst of hostile territory, and we are a hostile consulate. Built squarely in the midst of enemy territory. The DMZ on the 38th parallel. Now, I'm not going to try and go into this at any great length, but Ben and I, when we were talking, Ben has spent a lot of time studying North Korea, and so he brought something up, and it was, it was good. It was really good. Uh, but he, we were talking about the 38th parallel. You know, the Korea has sort of been batted around as like a plaything for Russia and America for quite some time. And I don't know, you know, I haven't gone into great depth in studying it, but I'm sure I would be disappointed in America and Russia uh, if I looked any deeper into it. But long and short, Russia took the north half uh, and America took the south half. Uh, we have the Korean War was such a massacre in, uh, in Korea. I think four million dead, four million Koreans dead. It's not that big of an island. That's a lot of dead. And there was this line that was created right along the 38th parallel, which divides South and North Korea. And North Korea is just a bad place. It is a place of death and carnage, disease and destitution. Anything bad that could take place is taking place in North Korea. We don't even know what's happening in North Korea right now. We can't even get in to see. And so we have this line, and on this line stands a South Korean soldier, and there on the other side is a North Korean soldier. And it's called the DMV, the Demilitarized Zone. There's never been, here it's a funny name for it, because there's probably never been more uh, military uh, and hostility along one line than right here. But every day, I think Ben was telling me this, every day the South Koreans make their peace treaty plea to say, will you sign these papers? And every day the North Koreans reject. There is no peace between these two countries. Multiple times the North Koreans have invaded and have sacked Seoul and overtaken Seoul and killed countless thousands of Koreans. And then the United States moves in with their forces and their allies, and they push back North Korea. This is hostility. And they live in the midst of it. We in America don't understand hostility. And that's why I think this is a good picture for the Christian life. Where we have been planted is on one side of the 38th parallel. And on the other side, they are hell-bent in seeing us destroyed. And if we give any access, we are done. Any access... We must be watchful and strong always. We must be vigilant along this line. The enemy wants to come in and destroy us. Here's a couple pictures. You are now crossing the 38th parallel. Look at this one. The two soldiers standing on the opposite ends of the 38th parallel. Isn't that amazing to see? Three rules of engagement. Stay out of the enemy's territory. If you cross over, you die. If the South Korean decides to walk across and just shake hands with the North Korean, he is commanded to instantly kill him. You do not cross the line unless you want to die. It doesn't matter. And as the statement goes, they cannot get familiar with each other. It might be the same guys staring at each other every day for 20 years. There's no niceties, no pleasantries. That's the enemy. And you make sure you always remember he's the enemy. The enemy of our souls in this earth will entreat us. He'll be polite to us at times. He will offer us different solutions for our life's issues and different comforting notions. We do not bargain with the enemy. If the enemy takes one step towards this side of the 38th parallel, you kill him. You do not negotiate. Because you know what? If you take one step towards his side, you know what he'll do to you? He'll kill you. We need to realize that enemy is the enemy. Keep the enemy out of your territory. If he crosses over, you must instantly execute him. Otherwise, he will execute you. Do you remember the term? Take every thought captive to the will of Christ Jesus. When the enemy makes his move upon your soul... You are called to literally hogtie it. You are called to bring it down into the dungeon of your soul, subjugate it under the foot 
of your military boot and say, you will not live. They have made the attempt to access your life, and you make it very clear your life is not accessible. Thus, guard the line. So, when we talk about the body, the body, it's just sort of a strange thing that we're all stuck in bodies. But the 38th parallel is all around our body. We are the place of attack. This is the stronghold of God on planet Earth. It's the human body. That's why sexual sin is such a huge thing. It's a sin against the body. We are the barricade for God's purposes, and we are on legs, and we take God's kingdom into the earth. It's an incredible picture. But around this is spiritual razor wire. We need to realize there's there's a funny thing, and I'm going to go into it in just a second. And I know this doesn't sound very cuddly and soft, all lamb-like, because we as Christians are called to be lambs. We are called to be soft. We are called to be merciful, gentle, kind, loving. In fact, that's the mark, the hallmark of us being Christians. How in the world do these things fit? Well, that's what I'm about to go into. However, what I've just said is still true. You need razor wire around your spiritual life. The enemy has no access. If there's a thought that is opposed to the kingdom of your Jesus, you take it captive and you subjugate it under the will of Jesus Christ. If there was any hostile movement against this body, against this life, you know what to do with it. As the term along the 38th parallel would be, execute it. And don't spend any time thinking about it. You show no mercy to that enemy. I know that sounds harsh, but I'm not talking about physical enemies. I'm talking about spiritual ones that are defying the living God. A time to be angry. Is there a time to be angry in the Christian life? What a fascinating thought. Are we ever supposed to be angry? Angry, I mean, there's a, there are people that have anger problems. There are people that that's literally the stronghold of sin in their life is anger. Well, how could it ever be good then? Is there actually a positive spin that we could ever get on anger? The word is kara in the, in the Hebrew. To be hot, furious, burn, become angry, to be kindled in vexation. Many of us would like this to be a possibility, especially like that ref calls a bad call against the Denver Broncos, and we're like, yes, Kara is justifiable in the Hebrew. We're like, ah, stupid ref. Is that the time? Here, I'm going to make a proposal that there is a time to be angry. However, the way a man or a woman of God is angry is very different than the way this world is angry. And Jacob was wroth. That's the word, kara. Isn't that a hilarious word? Wroth. That means very angry. And Moses was very wroth. The Lord was wroth. David was very wroth. I mean, now, these are some good characters. What are they doing getting wroth? Are they allowed to be wroth? It's a good question. Here's the Greek, or gizo. To be angry, to be wroth. Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. I don't want to mess with that. It's interesting though. It says, whoever is angry with his brother, look at that next little line, without a cause. Now, I can see people taking advantage of that too, going, hey, I have a cause. Uh, Still might not be the reason to be angry. This one's a fascinating one. Be angry, or wroth, and sin not. Which means it is somehow possible to be angry. In fact, it is appropriate to be angry in the kingdom of heaven. But we are not supposed to sin, which means it is not an anger that is born out of the flesh. Remember that grizzled guy, the big fat guy with the, uh, the, uh, the donut powder on his chin? He has a form of anger, which is very self-centered. And there is another form of anger which is born of the Spirit of God. I know that seems maybe hard to imagine. For a bishop must be blameless, not soon angry. He doesn't give way to anger quickly. In other words, there's a control, a temper to this soul. And the things that would typically set other people off don't set him off. But there is a righteous indignation. And his Lord was wroth. Now this is speaking to, I'm going to give you two different parables that Jesus shared. And when he's talking about the Lord in this, he's talking about the master in the circumstance, which is a parallel with God, 
with him. Jesus is literally showing his emotion and how he would handle the situation in these parables. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murders and burned up their city. There is a time when God gets wroth. It's been proven all throughout the Bible. So if we're going to get mad, you know, at the fact that, hey, that's, that's inappropriate behavior for any Christian. Well, God gets wroth. Now, he's very patient. He's, he's what the Bible terms long-suffering. He endures difficulty and terrible behavior for a very long time. But there are certain things that get him wroth. And when God's wroth, things don't go very well for the ones he's wroth against. I don't know if I'm using the word wroth well in that, but... Uh, now here we have a word that is very different than wrath. Meekness. Now meekness is one of those weak sounding words. When we were over in uh, Indonesia, the men at the end, they caught the vision for being strong men and, and when they needed to be strong and soft when they needed to be soft. And one of the words that they were using to describe it was meekness. And so they, were, they, they had this chant and it went like this. Did, did I tell you guys this in the beginning? We are men of steel. We are men of down. We are men of God. We are meek. We are not weak. That was what they said. Meekness. Listen to what it is. It's the, it's the equivalent. The mental picture would be a wild stallion. A stallion has strength, beauty, but it's dangerous as long as it is not broken to the master horseman's will. A wild stallion has a lot of power, but it is, if it is untempered power, it's dangerous. But if that power of that strength is harnessed and broken to be useful to the master horseman, then it's known as meekness. It is strength harnessed and directed. Strength harnessed, bearing injuries rather than returning them. A meek man has strength and has the ability to do great damage to other people, but he can be hit in one cheek and literally have the internal resolve to turn the other cheek and not strike out. A meek man can be the master of worlds, that was Jesus Christ, and can be falsely accused, can be uh, raked over uh, all the most torturous elements, can be brought to a crucifixion scene, falsely accused, mocked and ridiculed, and not open his mouth. How in the world could a man do that? That's meekness. It's incredible strength that is harnessed. Now look at James. So we're, we're going to go and we're going to show sort of a contrast here between, you know, because when we talk about anger, that doesn't sound very good. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now most of us feel a little more at home with that. It's like, oh, whew, okay, back to Christianity. Now that's the way we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be pure, peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits. You know that that's true? We are. So that's a truth, yet what I just shared with you before we got to this is still a truth. But they seem to have a great tension between them, and they seem impossible to coexist. Let's look at another one in 2 Timothy. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, must not argue, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves or that oppose him, is, would be a pro better way of saying it. In other words, when someone opposes him, he doesn't just punch him in the, in the teeth. He shows meekness and restraint to instruct him, to properly guide them. And that gentleness or that meekness is actually what leads that person to repentance. Repentance, if you keep looking on in 2 Timothy. In other words, this is how we win over the hostile crowd is they see our meekness. It is an evidence of heaven come to earth. We have strength, but it is harnessed, and we are governed by something bigger than ourselves. Now the man Moses was very meek, above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Now, have we mentioned Moses before in this message? Hmm. The seeming contradiction. The man Moses was very meek, and Moses was very wroth. What? What are we looking at here? This is a strange one. Now, you'll notice that isn't one sentence in the Bible. I just compiled two from Numbers 12 and Numbers 16. 
but I'm showing that the man who is described as the most meek of all men on the face of the earth also is described as a man who was wroth at times. When he saw the people of Israel building a golden calf unto God, or worshiping a golden calf instead of God, well, guess what? Is there reason to be wroth? I think so. The anatomy of righteousness. Righteousness is as a man ought to be. There is a way that we should be. And so I want to break down the pattern of that. And I'm going to propose to you that it is as the man Moses was. He was very meek, and yet at times he was very wroth. Gentle towards evildoers, and yet violent towards evil. Okay, now look at the distinction between the two here. A man who is righteous, the way he ought to be, is gentle towards evildoers. Well, look at the second one, though. He's violent towards evil. He does not take lightly the powers of hell. And when evil makes its move upon his soul, he strikes it in the teeth. He does not pander for evil's good opinion. He doesn't hug evil in his life. He hits it squarely in the jaw. But he is gentle towards evildoers. A man who is righteous is merciful towards sinners and yet forceful and fierce towards sin. Hmm. A man who is righteous is patient towards the weakness in others, yet vigorously opposed to weakness in self. He is lamb-like unto the people of this earth, yet lion-like unto the forces of hell. We've given a message in the past which was faces of lions. And one of the descriptions I always have of Sandy McConaughey is that she's this... Uh, fluffy little lamb with the face of a lion. That's Christianity. Shouldn't be the description just of Sandy. Should be the description of every single one of us. We are as lambs to this world. And when they come near us, they sense the love, the gentleness, the mercy, and the kindness of God Almighty. However, we do not stand for evil. We do not pander after it to get its good approval in our life. We do not hug it. We do not sidle up next to it and give it a pat on the back. We execute it. We take care of it. We are hostile weapons of the kingdom of heaven in this earth to tear down strongholds of evil. The gritted teeth. Introducing spiritual pugnacity. You ever heard the word pugnacious? I like words. That's one of my favorite words. It's not a very good word, though, so I've had to come up with a creative way to make it a good word, so I have here. This is, this is really fun. Pugnacious. What do you think of when you hear the word pugnacious? A little pug dog? That's very similar to what pugnacious is. Imagine a pug dog that grabs a hold of uh, the, the bottom of your, your pant leg, and he won't let go. And you're, like, shaking him. He's, like, flying in the air, but you cannot get him off the, the, the pant leg. Pugnacious. That's it! We do not let go. When we get a grip, we hold on. We are pugnacious. So the term I'm going to use is pugnacity, okay? The gritted teeth. Now, one of the things that you've heard me say in the past, and this is the thing I've been trying to get an articulation for, and that is a spiritual soul disposition towards sin. We can't be passive towards sin. We can't just say, you know, I, I, I don't like it because God doesn't like it. You know that we oftentimes, as Christians, have an attraction towards sin, but we try not to participate in sin because we know it offends God. And so we do the best we can. I remember this one lady asking, she said, what is, this is, we were, I was in a missionary school, and she said, I want you all to think of your uh, secret sin. What kind of, I don't want to think about that, that's horrible. She said, I want you to think about that secret sin. You might not be doing it right now. You might, you might not be participating in it right now, but if you are weak and vulnerable, it's the first thing you go to. What is it? So all of us are, probably all of us in here know instantaneously what that is. And she said this, I want to ask you a question about your secret sin. Do you hate your secret sin? Or you just try not to do it because you know God would be offended? Because she said the fear of God is hating what God hates and loving what God loves. She said, do you hate your secret sin? You know what? 
I didn't hate my secret sin. I just tried not to do it. I was nailed in the heart with that one. And I want you to realize, you must have gritted teeth. You must have an enmity against sin. You must have the same disposition towards it that God has towards it. You will resolve to conquer. You hate it. You, it makes you angry when you see its work in other people's lives. And you have gritted teeth. And you're saying, not on my watch. You have to have gritted teeth in your soul. If you find yourself lazy in your soul, you're listening to the message like, oh, but that's hard. You need spiritual gusto. You need spiritual strength to rise up within you to say, no, no, this will not enter. You know the type of man or woman that builds high walls around their consulate and puts that razor wire in place? It's the men and women with gritted teeth. No way. God has established something here. He started it. He's going to bring it to completion. And no enemy is going to overtake this territory. This body belongs to Jesus Christ. It is no longer my own. It was bought with a price. And that price was the precious blood of Jesus. And I do not take that lightly. Grit your spiritual teeth. So introducing spiritual pugnacity. I really like this word. So I'm going to introduce it to you at a little deeper level. Pugnacity. It means combative, aggressive, antagonistic, belligerent. I love that. Bellicose, warlike, quarrelsome, argumentative, contentious, disputatious, hostile, threatening, truculent, fiery, hot-tempered. Those are the things we're not allowed to be as Christians. Except when it comes to sin. And then you now have the freedom to be pugnacious. But not pugnacious towards God. Not pugnacious to other people on earth, like to your parents, which some kids in here are like, can I be pugnacious to my mom and dad? <laughs> no, you can't. But you can be pugnacious towards sin. And that bait of the enemy that is always trying to woo you to darkness. You can be combative, aggressive, antagonistic, belligerent, bellicose, warlike, quarrelsome, argumentative, contentious, disputatious, hostile, threatening, truculent, fiery, and hot-tempered. Look at the antonym. Peaceable. We are supposed to be peaceable. That's what's funny. We are commanded to be peaceable. But not when it comes to sin. We are supposed to be hostile and combative for our souls. We have a job to do. We arm ourselves in the armor of God and we stand our ground. And we hold up the shield of faith and it quells every fiery dart of the enemy. Which means we do not willingly receive the fiery darts from the enemy. We hold up that shield and push them back. It says resist the devil and he will flee. Which means we are supposed to resist the devil. We have a job to do. We're supposed to love and to serve and to be kind and gentle and peaceable with the men and women around us. We're to demonstrate the meekness of Jesus Christ. However, all hell must be on red alert because we are on the war path to tear down the enemy strongholds that are holding men and women captive in sin. We have a job to do and we do not sit by idly and twiddle our spiritual thumbs. We go after it. We take the we we go after the enemy and we take the battle to his gates. The top 10 most pugnacious moments in the Bible. Paul at Lystra. He's stoned, brought outside the city. What does he do? Pops back to life and says, I'm going back in, boys. Pugnacity. Pugnacious. He just keeps going. He does not take no for an answer. The men and women in Lystra are held captive in hell's grip, and Paul is going at it. Caleb and Hebron. Five years, they've been clearing the land of promise of all the darkness and all the inhabitants, all those giant men, but still, the Mount of Hebron still had the strongest and mightiest of all the giants, the sons of Anak, and they still lived there. And Caleb says, give me the mountain of giants. Combative, forceful, aggressive. He did not just try and go up and negotiate with them, come up with some peace treaty. He said, you will leave. Eight, David with the lion and the bear. Pugnacity. Take one of his lambs and he goes running after him, breaks the lion's jaw and removes the prey from his teeth. He's combative. He doesn't say, oh, do whatever you want, lion. 
You know, I'm supposed to be peace-loving. He was angry. That lion has no business touching of his flock. He goes after him, breaks his jaw, and gets back what belongs to him. Seven, King Josiah's romp through Israel. He sees righteousness. Josiah sees the way Israel ought to be. And so what does he do? He breaks down every altar and turns it to ash and to dust. He kills all the priests that are literally doing the work of darkness. He removes it from the land. That is your inner life. You grit your teeth and say, it all goes. Everything that stands against my king goes. Number six, Jesus clearing the temple. You want to see anger? Look at this. Your God grits his teeth and with all the pugnacity of heaven goes into that temple and clears it out. You want to know how Jesus wants to handle your temple, the human body? He'll take a whip if necessary and he'll clear it out because he is zealous for the house of God. Five, Joab at the castle of Zion. The castle of Zion, also known as Jerusalem. This is before David took it over. They are mocking David. David has just become the king over Israel and Judah. And the Jebusites are mocking David, saying, oh, the Israelites are blind and weak and lame. They couldn't touch us. And so David said, the first one to wipe the smirk off the Jebusites' face will be captain among my men. And Joab, ahead of all the other troops, runs up the gutter into the city, literally jumps into a hostile city that is waiting for them. By himself, strikes the cheek of a Jebusite. That's good. That's pugnacity. Four, David at Pazdaman. All Israel flees. An entire host, an army of Philistines coming against a little small plot of barley and beans known as Pazdaman. And David stands up and draws his sword. He doesn't play the pacifism card. He plays the pugnacity card. And he says, not on my watch. This territory belongs to God Almighty, and I will not relent. And it says the Lord wrought a great victory that day. David defying Goliath. Pugnacity. He resisted the enemy. He comes into the valley of Elah where the the armies of Israel and the armies of the Philistine are camped on opposite ends of the valley. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? That he would blaspheme them. Who is he? Let me at him. Is that what your soul is screaming out? Let me at him. Let me strike him in the cheek. Not getting in here. I am not going to be invaded by darkness. That thought, no way. Out. Is that the way you speak to your thoughts that aren't in agreement with Jesus Christ? I want you to learn to be pugnacious. I don't know how to get it inside of you. All I know is that this is the number one thing God has taught me over the past few years. You do not take it lying down. When the enemy makes his move, you stand up and you strike back. Let him know you mean business in the name of Jesus. Let him know and remember the merits of the shed blood of Jesus, that this body belongs to Jesus Christ. This mind is not the workshop of the devil. It's the workshop of God Almighty. And purity reigns here. You will not take it. Pugnacity. Samuel and Agag. You guys remember Agag? Samuel tells Saul, kill all the Amalekites. The Amalekites are symbolic of the flesh. Remember the big fat guy with the grizzled beard and the uh, donut powder? Uh Amalekites. And God says, get them out of my land. They don't belong here. And so Saul goes off and he kills the grosser elements of the Amalekites, but he leaves the sheep and the oxen, the best of the sheep and the oxen, and they're king alive, King Agag. Samuel comes in the next day and he's like, "Uh, hey, is that the bleeding of sheep that I hear? How come you didn't do the job? You didn't finish. You know that Saul was rejected as king of Israel because he didn't kill the Amalekites? So what did Samuel do? He sees King Agag sitting there, takes out his sword, and I won't finish the story, but he was pugnacious, and he did the job well. Are we willing to do the job well to the King Agag within our life? He does not remain in Israel. Kill him! Get him out! The same men and women of God who were the most loving, the most meek, the most kind, the most gentle are the most harsh and the most fierce towards sin and darkness. 
what an interesting thing that we could be so violent in one end and so soft on the other. Remember my description of masculinity? A man who knows when to be fierce and when to be hard and when to be soft. We're built to be warriors. We're not built to be pushovers. Jesus at the cross. I know that's a strange thing to to call the cross pugnacity. You know what Jesus was doing at the cross? He was sticking a big, long cross, sharpened like a spear, right into the gut of sin and darkness. He did it. It's the greatest warrior movement you've ever seen. It was like one of those guys that's like uh, both hands tied behind his back. He's gagged. All it seems lost. And they come at him ready to kill him. He takes the very instrument of death being used to kill him, turns it, and sticks it right in the gut of the enemy. Uh, That's our God. You could say, that's a little too violent to describe Jesus with. That's Jesus. He destroyed the powers of earth and hell. It's okay to recognize it as violent. They ran into the God of the universe, the holy, holy, holy God. And they met with a just reward. And that is defeat. The enemy took a step past the 38th parallel. And God said, oh, no, you don't. Holy, holy, holiness is the south side. Dark, dark, darkness. The two don't intermix. God dwells in light, and in him is no darkness at all. And when we are God's children, there is no darkness allowed in. And we must live as if that's a truth and not just a good idea. Cultivating spiritual pugnacity. In your thought life, When you're driving down the road and there's billboards, I always tell guys, not a second given to them. It's not your fault that they're there. I mean, you didn't erect the crazy thing. And yes, you do have to get from South Denver to North Denver. How in the world are you supposed to get by all these things? Close your eyes? That's not a good idea when you're driving. So what do you do with these things? You have to have razor wire around your mind. And so if you happen to see something, the next thing you do is immediately bounce off of it. You do not spend a moment thinking about it. You take it captive, you say, no. And you have to be aggressive. You ponder it and meditate upon it for one second, and the enemy has an inroads. Not a second. You have to be aggressive with your thought life. If you ever have some weird thought dancing around in your head, you may not have put it there. The enemy's great at planning thoughts. I'm not exactly sure how he does it. But somehow he gets his little memos into our life. It's almost like a, a little uh, uh, paper airplane. Shoots it up and it's like, whew, whew, it lands right in front of us. Like, well, what's that? And we open it up and we're like, wait a minute. I've been duped. If you ever see a thought or have a thought in your mind that is not in agreement with heaven, you kick it out instantly. You need pugnacity to rise up and say, No! You have to be aggressive. If you're kind to that thought, if you entertain that thought, it gains ground on your soul. Not a second. In your emotions. I'm not much much of a feeler in the sense of I'm ruled by my emotions. Uh, I actually am the one that's praying for God to give me more emotions. However, there are some of you in here that can easily be ruled by emotions. It's the same thing as thought life. You can't, make, you can't look at a man and go, oh, that man isn't guarding his thought life. If you're not guarding your emotional life, because emotions work in a very similar fashion. They, there's a bait for them. Self-pity, classic emotion. Oh, poor you. Can you believe they did that to you? Oh, no, I just can't. Oh, kick it out. Kick it out now. It can't spread any further. It's a disease. You get rid of these things the first moment they begin to awaken within your soul, you you execute them. They have taken a step across the 38th parallel and they cannot survive. In your body. You've you've heard my statement on this in the past. This is is an important tool, this body. It's the only way I'm going to get from here to there. It's the only way I'm going to be able to deliver the message that God is building inside of me. God is doing a work inside this body so that I can take this body, take this mouth, take these hands and feet, and utilize them to deliver the gospel. And so there's razor wire around this body even physically. 
I take it very seriously. If I have to travel to Indonesia, which by the way, I don't know how long it was, what, 32 hours we were figuring on the, on the way there. And then of course, because of the volcano in Japan, it was like 40 hours on the way, way back. It wasn't all in a plane at least. If you're gonna go all the way to Indonesia, you better be healthy. There needs to be strength. There needs to be a valiance of body even, not just soul. You can't just have the right opinions and the right notions. You have to be sound of mind. Jet lag doesn't work when you're sharing the gospel. So you know my attitude towards jet lag over there? No. There were our moments. Ben and I are walking you know, in the middle of the day. It's totally bright out. No. Pugnacity for the human body in your marriage. But I tell you what, the attack on Christian marriage. What do we do about it? Throw our hands up in the air and say, oh, nothing we can do. It's just an attack and these things happen. You know, there's erosion to marriage. Marriages get worse as you progress. Is that true? Not in heaven it's not true. In heaven it gets better and better and better. So if something is eroding your marriage, you need pugnacity to fight it. Not your marriage partner. When a wolf is coming against the sheep, you don't punch the sheep. You hit the wolf. And there are wolves that are coming against our souls and our marriages and our kids. We hit the wolf, not the sheep. In your family, I think that's enough said. In your friendships, in your ministry, in your church, in your community, in your world. Well, that gets pretty big. You know, it's one thing to deal with your own soul, but then to be pugnacious to guard and protect your marriage and your family, your church? Could you imagine you saw someone in this church that was being hounded by a wolf spiritually? And what happens inside of you? No. No. And what do you do? You get down on your knees and you begin to fight for that soul. And if there's anything practical you can do, you do it. Well, that's one thing. I mean, we're, we're a fairly small body compared to the community. The community's a big place. How about the world? You know that we are built by God and we become a consulate of the kingdom of heaven on this earth, not so that we can just sit behind this, bar, this razor wire you know, and say, oh, at least I'm safe. God puts wheels on our, on our consulate and he sets us out into this earth to bring other people inside the razor wire. We are like wall builders and razor wire hangers. We help people get protected. We help people come inside that barbed wire fence. We are the ones that stand guard with those big, cool boots and that mask and the, what else did they have? And the machine gun. Oh, they looked good. I was thinking, boy, I'd, I'd look good in one of those outfits. Did, especially, I think I was wearing one of those T-shirts that day, too, so I was feeling extra girly uh, in Indonesia. So I, I, needed, I was looking at that outfit. I was like, that's nice. Uh, This is interesting. Crossing over the 38th parallel. We stand in light. And there's, there's a line that defines darkness from light. And we stand our guard. Truth, error. The kingdom of, of Jesus, the kingdom of Lucifer. This world is in the kingdom of Lucifer. It's in the kingdom of darkness. You know what God says? We come to him, and he builds us strong. He sticks wheels on our consulate. And then what does he do? He sends us across the line. He sends us north. Oh, this is exciting. He sends us into the darkest dens of hell. Why would he do that? I'm going to die over there. What did he do? He crossed the 38th parallel from heaven to earth. And he gave up his life. That's the rescue strategy. We must recognize the moment we step across that line, they are commanded to execute us. We make ourselves vulnerable. Yes, it's true. If we stay just on our side, maybe we could live a long life into our elderly years. But God says... I'm looking for men and women who are willing to go north. No one gets in there. And if they do get in there, they usually don't come back alive. Who's in? 
And then all of us squirm in our seat. And we're like, dear God, what? I just want to be peace-loving. I just want to, you know, give hugs. There is a job to do. There is an enemy stronghold and is holding captive men and women of this earth who without your voice speaking the truth of the gospel may not hear it. Who's willing to cross the 38th parallel? The guns are aimed straight at you if you do. But this is the calling of Christians throughout the ages that we say, God, I'm willing. But then what you'll find is it's not just God, I'm willing. This is funny. It's God, please choose me. God, please choose me. And then you start looking at yourself going, what's wrong with me? God is at work within your soul. And he's given you that pugnacity. It's actually a desire to fight the enemy. Take me to the enemy's territory. Let me fight. Let me fight, God. And usually then God says, no, I want you here for a season. And you're just like bursting at the seams. God, let me go. They need to hear. And the enemy needs to be hitting the teeth. Let me go. So until you start feeling that pull within you to go where no other man on earth or woman on earth would want to go, God hasn't fully gotten a hold of you yet. Because this is what happens. It's a desire to go. It's a desire to be sent. As my Father has sent me, even so I send you. So Jesus says, as the Father sent me across the DMZ, and I crossed the 38th parallel into darkness, as the Father sent me to give up my life and to render powerless the works of the enemy, so I send you. Uh, that's exciting. Not all of you look that excited, but uh, that's exciting. Now, if you asked me if I'm desirous to be called to North Korea, gulp, uh, I don't want to speak very quickly on that one because this would be recorded, and years later, God would say, bring up that old uh, piece of footage. And I would look at it, and God would say, the time is now. So if I don't say it, maybe he can't bring up the old piece of footage. You ever had that type of reasoning in your Christian life? There isn't anything in me naturally that's attracted to going to North Korea. But there is something spiritually inside of me that hankers, that, that desires to be the one that God chooses to go into the darkest dens. It's working within me. It's not fully there. But C.T. Studd, when he found out about interior Africa and the fact that no missionary had ever gone in there, there was absolute darkness on the inside. The only white-skinned man that had ever been there was David Livingston. Absolute darkness in this territory. The gospel had never reached it. C.T. Studd was too sick to hardly get up out of bed, and he looked up to heaven and he said, God, send me. It's the guy's problem. Uh, C.T., do you know that white people couldn't even survive in there? Uh, three days, uh, the disease would overtake your body and you'd die. That's the average length of time any, any man who's not familiar with that uh, area physically can last. God sent me. Do you know that when you step across that line into north, across that 38th parallel, they kill you? God, send me. Please, don't look anywhere else. If you're looking, I'm ready. Christianity. It's the Christianity we need in this day and age. We don't need any more of the version that we've all grown up around. We need the real thing. The kind that carries men and women across the 38th parallel. The kind that moves men and women into the most difficult of circumstances because the cause of Jesus Christ is too great. The enemy is mocking our God. And it should be said of the modern church, and they were very wroth. Oh, I wish I could quote that one line from, uh, from Leonard Ravenhill. Something about the Lord is slighted and so is his church, and under this double injury I smart. Do we smart under the double injury that our Lord is being blasphemed and his church is being ridiculed? What's happening inside of you? Are you just passive to that and go, oh, you know, it's just the way it is. The enemy hates us. Or do you rise up and say, not on my watch. Grit those spiritual teeth. 
A little pugnacity is needed. Let's go to battle. We fight to win. God has never lost a battle in all of world history. And if you go out to fight, you may die, but the battle will not be lost. It'll be won, no matter what happens to us. Isn't that exciting? Let's pray. Holy Father, grit our teeth. Lord, I pray that we would know what righteous wrath is. We would understand righteous indignation. That we would not settle. That we would not be passive to sin in our bodies, in our families, in our marriages, in our churches, in this world. But we would recognize that we are called to go to battle for truth. We are called to tear down and demolish enemy strongholds. So Lord Jesus, arm us and make us ready to fight. Show us how to love and to be gentle and merciful to men and women around us. But how to hit in the teeth all the spiritual powers that are waging war against your kingdom. We love you and trust you. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.